you want to finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Economowak is in the house. All right. Welcome to Matt McKnight, uh, who is a friend of mine. We go way back to the days of the Marine Corps. I think we met in, did we meet in uh, Al-Assad? I think that's right. 2008? I think we met in 2007 at Al-Assad. Matt was a ground intelligence officer in the Marine Corps. Um, Prior to that, he was a distinguished alum of Dartmouth College an online university in somewhere in New England. Um, from, well, you're kind of from, you're, you have like Wyoming roots as well, right? Who are you, Matt? Uh, who, are? who am I? Um, I? I would quibble only with the distingu- distinguished uh, designation. I did happen to graduate, but that's about all I can claim. Um, I grew up in Maine, actually, uh, way up uh, near Bangor, Maine, in the center part of the state. And then migrated my way down to New Hampshire, spent a few years in the, uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, as you highlighted, and then off to grad school and have found my way back to Boston. You went to Harvard Business School. Uh, were you, are you still in the, uh, the reserves in the Marine Corps? Um, I, my official last day, uh, honorable discharge paperwork came through last week is April 1st. So we are wow. days away. How many years total then, if you add up active? 16, 17, somewhere in there. Wow. That's, uh, couldn't, make it, couldn't make it to the end. I remember thinking when I was a second <laughs> that majors were super old. Oh, it was amazing. And now that like my friends are majors, it's a very bizarre experience. It's very, it's, it's very bizarre. Uh, lieutenant, okay. lieutenant colonels were literally the gods on planet Earth. Well, I told, I, I told, it's funny now, like, you know, if you get elected to Congress, all of a sudden people think you're important. And so, like, I will never get over the commandant coming into my office and calling me sir, because my instinct is to just, you know, stand at attention and call him sir. But I guess everything's <laughs> relative, Matt. Okay, so you go to HBS, you get out, you work for a variety of companies, we'll post your bio and everything. Um, but you find yourself now working for a company called Ginkgo Bioworks in the realm of synthetic biology. Tell us what is synthetic biology for the for the uninitiated here yeah it's interesting so after i left business school i was an investor for six or seven years uh, primarily focusing on early stage companies Um, and i started to look around just at technology trends uh to try to understand as as you i was a history major right so as you look at through different periods of history what was what were the transformational economic catalysts right um, and I came across this company by, by pure luck, actually, living in Boston, because I, I don't claim to be any savant when it comes to the future of technology uh, called Ginkgo. And, and we can talk about Ginkgo, but really what I think is most important is to, is to understand what it embodies as a company. Um, and what Ginkgo was doing was essentially looking at the, the last domain of high school science. We all take uh, physics, chemistry, and biology in high school. And physics and chemistry as sciences, we've turned into engineering disciplines. The beams behind you, right? There's a math equation that goes into making sure your house doesn't fall down. It's essentially physics, right? With some chemical properties that we understand and know how to control. And then you've got this last domain, biology. Um, the, most powerful, the most powerful foundational science, right? It, it is everything around us. It is our bodies. It is everything that we live, 
breathe. It is all of, uh, all of GDP as biology somewhere in the supply chain. But yet we don't really truly understand how to use it for um, human purposes. We, we dabble in it, right, in, in the pharmaceutical world, but we don't really understand it. So I got really captured by this concept, which has been emerging. And like, if you took one thing away from this conversation, it would be that, you know, we can now program cells like we program computers because they run on digital code in the form of DNA, right? And so biology at its core, and you go back to high school biology, every living thing runs on DNA. You remember that scene in Jurassic Park where they have a little like cartoon DNA floating around? Like every living thing, plants, animals, humans, at the center is this code, A, T, C, and G, DNA. And we now can read it through DNA sequencing. We can write it, we can print any, any sequence of that code that we want, and we can put it into living things and see what it does. And so this concept that that biology is programmable versus just experimental. By the way, thousands of years we've been experimenting with it. That, that gives us the ability to transition from a world where biology is just what is around us innately what we are to say, is, are there things we can do with biology to turn them into engineering disciplines like physics and chemistry? There's much more to that, right? But that fundamental kind of intuition that we are on the cusp of turning this last domain of high school science into something that we can use for good human purposes going forward in healthcare, in food, uh, in novel materials, and all of the things that are around us that we've never really leveraged biology in a predictable and, and um, proactive way. And when I like stumbled on that just by luck of living in Boston and being around it, and saw what Ginkgo was doing to try to make that real, I couldn't get out of my head. I've invested in probably 150 companies early stage, and I think they'll all do well, hopefully. But there was one that I just couldn't get out of my head saying like, ah, oh, I got to go work for that company. That's awesome. So, okay. So DNA is a way that essentially, you know, God or nature has figured out to transmit data through the generations. We've now figured out a way to read that data, the ATCs and Gs. But beyond that, um, we figured out a way to manufacture it. Um, so t maybe uh, I think there's a lot of people who are aware of, of CRISPR, sort of the way, you know, Chinese have figured out how to play with this stuff. Maybe tell us how what you guys are doing is different than that yeah. way to kind of expand on exactly. Because I, I sort of see you at the intersection of like hardcore manufacturing and also the most advanced biotech at the same time. Yeah, it, and that's a, that's a very cool way to think about it because um, biotech has been this esoteric thing for, for 40 years in, in healthcare. But uh, really what is happening is it's we're turning it into a manufacturing discipline and i'll come back to that but i think what's really important is how you lay that out we can read dna we can write dna so if you can read a digital code if you could read a binary language and you can write it then what can you do you can program right and you can write different versions of programs just like you can write different versions of um, computer programs you can write different versions of DNA programs and see what they do, right? And see, see what they do when they're run in a, in a cell. CRISPR, just to give you an example, is now very powerful, but it is just a tool. It is like scissors, right? It's a tool you would use in the process of programming. So I might print out a, a DNA sequence that I think does something cool. Maybe it codes for, um, maybe it codes for a molecule that smells nice. 
when okay. you put it in the cell, the cell reads it and makes the molecule that smells nice. Um, so you print, you put it into the cell. CRISPR would be something that you would use to come in as a tool to help you do that more efficiently. CRISPR is a very powerful one, but it's one tool. So what Ginkgo's trying to do is to say, but just quickly, okay, so you can imagine yeah. if you had uh, DNA that was um, disposed to disease, CRISPR could theoretically come in and edit that out of the sequence. Is that one of the sort of powerful aspects of it? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow there. No, it's really important. Uh, that's one of the, if you look at the therapeutics, like healthcare applications, yeah. drug applications, that's one like very direct use of CRISPR. You're gonna look at certain, certain DNA sequences that are causing um, significant health issues. And that is the, that would be a direct use of that tool where to answer your question, where Ginkgo's different is Ginkgo's actually trying to say, if you can read and you can write and you can program, the problem is programming has been very artisanal. It's like when people tried to build cars in the 1890s before the Model T assembly line, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what we're trying to do is say, well, the programming piece is actually what's really valuable to humanity moving forward as opposed to you know, CRISPR, yep, go fix that DNA very hard, but a direct use, what we're saying is you have to bring automation to the programming piece to make it not artisanal, but to do it on a manufacturing scale, and I can get into more of that, what that means. Um, but it's the programming piece that hasn't been, hasn't really changed its cost curve. DNA, DNA reading, DNA sequencing, that was the Human Genome Project. Government invested massively ahead of the curve to bring the cost of doing a human genome from $100 million to 1,000, and BGI, Beijing Genomics, just announced they can do a human genome for $100, right? So that's a cost curve that came down. But the, the programming piece where you put all of those things together, that's been very expensive until you brought automation into the process. So talk to us, okay, so for the casual listener who may think, okay, this sounds really interesting. You know, you have a bunch of super smart people in Boston doing something that I sort of vaguely understand. What would be, what would be the potential, what, what are the practical yeah. applications of this now? And where do you kind of see this going? And then after that, I kind of want to go into coronavirus. Sure. Um, remind me to come back to something if I don't hit on it um, around uh, your comment about people and smart people other than myself in Boston and other places doing this. Yeah, for the record, they don't think smart at all. I think yeah, no, you're smart it, for most of your life, which is itself a form of intelligence. <laughs> um, remind me to come back to that because I think biology uniquely is an exciting technology on this kind of technology curve where um, kind of traditional bases of industry have a massive opportunity. Okay. Um, but let me come back to that. Uh, the, yeah, applications are fun, right? So applications are really cool to think about. Um, let me put aside all of, like the amazing novel therapeutics to help humans live longer. Let me get like, give you a really tangible example. Uh, so has, have you had an impossible burger yet? No, I have not. I've heard about this. It's like not meat, but tastes like meat. Yeah, right. Um, and this isn't just like, I love meat, by the way. Like, this is not a replacement of meat thesis. Um, this is a how do you feed 7 billion, then 12 billion people with good proteins. But Impossible Burger. There is now an Impossible Whopper, Burger King. Like, American institution has said this is good enough to put the Whopper name on it. So what is it, right? So what uh, the Impossible Whopper is, is it's a totally plant-based burger that tastes like a burger, that bleeds like a burger, that when you bite into it, you're like, oh, I think that might be meat, right? And what is the unique thing that they've done? Well, what they figured out was that heme, the stuff that makes your blood red, is a enzyme protein, right? 
And now that is the critical thing when you're having a barbecue. You cook a burger and it blood, the blood like kind of heats up. It gives it that flavor and that taste. Well, turns out the plants also have heme. Soy has heme, just has really tiny quantities of it. So you can't grow it in enough quantities to put it into a plant-based burger. So they found this heme, figured out what the DNA code was, the sequence of DNA that coded for heme, took that DNA code, reprogrammed it into beer yeast, basically. So beer yeast, you put it in a fermenter, you feed it sugar. The yeast reads its DNA program, takes the sugar, turns it into alcohol. Well, they reprogrammed the beer yeast, put in the DNA program that codes for heme. Now the beer yeast eats sugar, reads the DNA program for heme, and brews blood. Now that blood is plant blood. And then they take that plant blood into a first order approximation. You put it into a food formulation that is, that is the kind of mass of a veggie burger. And now you've got a veggie burger with like plant blood in it that cooks and tastes and feels like a real burger. So much so that Burger King is willing to put it, put the Whopper name on it. Wow. Right. And so, so that is synthetic biology. Wow. What is synthetic biology? The ability to read DNA program cells with the DNA sequence that you want to produce new novel products that are amazing for consumers. It's taking high school biology and figuring out how to make it an engineerable discipline by writing different programs of DNA code. And you end up with a veggie burger that tastes like a real burger that Burger King is willing to put the Whopper name on. So beyond Whoppers, which I don't mean to diminish the importance of Whoppers, uh, I had a, my principal in grade school was a great uh, sister Vianney, uh, a great uh, nun from Ireland. We, I think like once a week we would get fast food and it would occasionally be Burger King, but she could never say Burger King. She would always say, King Burger. You can have some. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let me give you another. Let me give you another one. Really yeah. cool. Um, this is a program Ginkgo. That impossible burger Ginkgo is not working on, but to give you an example of uh, something that Ginkgo is working on. So we have a hundred million dollar joint venture with Bayer Crop Science. Um, and just to nerd out for one second, right? Like um, chemical engineering. If we're doing biological engineering, chemical engineering's one of their greatest feats um, is the Haber-Bosch process, right? Uh, burn a bunch of natural gas, suck nitrogen out of the atmosphere and make nitrogen-based fertilizer. Massively, massively energy intensive, but you feed the world, right? Yeah. And then you dump it on fields, half of it makes plants grow, half of it flows into the ocean. Well, the Haber-Bosch process is an amazing technical feat that we've invented to make nitrogen-based fertilizer. Well, it turns out peanuts, for example, don't need nitrogen fertilizer. Why don't they need nitrogen fertilizer? Because they have a little microbe, a little bacteria that grows on their roots naturally that does the Haber-Bosch process for peanuts. It's a symbiotic relationship where the microbes bring nitrogen out of the atmosphere and feed it to the, to the peanut plant. Well, that's a DNA program in the microbe that allows it to do that. So Ginkgo has a $100 million collaboration to take that DNA program, figure out what it is, to a first order approximation, then move that DNA program into the microbes that live on corn, wheat, and rice, the world's staple crops. So if you can move that DNA program into those new bacteria, the bacteria that already live on corn, then you cut out the world's need for as much nitrogen-based fertilizer through chemical engineering process and, a ma and massively reduce the need for uh, burning natural gas to suck uh, nitrogen out of the atmosphere. And so that's, a, that's another kind of like very exciting example where biology is just way better and more efficient at doing something that we, we definitely need 
than say our current methodologies, which are mostly chemistry based methodologies for almost all industries. So one technical note here. Um, I have no idea since it's the first time I'm recording on Zoom, whether it's recording your face or mine when we talk. Do you have any insight on that, Matt? <laughs> um, all I see is the recording button. Um, okay. well, we'll figure it out at some point as we go along here. But uh, it may just turn into it may just turn into audio only. Audio. <laughs> that's right. This is good. We're making this up as we go along here. Everyone's having to evolve in, you know, as we hunker down during coronavirus. Um, okay, so your company recently announced, uh, forgive me if I, if I was reading this yesterday and I don't remember the exact amount, but a large multi-million dollar uh, award or access to your multi-million dollar facilities for private teams and public teams that have uh, potential ideas for treatments and vaccines as it relates to coronavirus. Maybe tell us what you see kind of, how can we weaponize, and that's probably the wrong word, but leverage companies like yours and synthetic biology to potentially help uh, help get us out of this crisis? Yeah, look, so maybe two things. One, one thing I should just hit on, right? Generally, we have this conversations about SynBio. Ginkgo specifically is building the back end to cell engineering, to synthetic biology. So we don't want to be a product company. What we're trying to do is build that. Uh, think about Amazon Web Services, cloud computing. We want people to be building different applications using biology on top of what we do. So uniquely, we have a 120,000 square foot facility that we put $800 million into in Boston Seaport that's meant to enable other people to go faster, get more scale, and be more successful in their cell engineering programs. So we uniquely have this massively diverse, flexible platform for doing what we just have been talking about. And when, the, when um, COVID-19 became much more, it was clear that it was coming to the rest of the world outside of China. Um, what we said is it is just an obligation right now to turn the power of this platform on accelerating uh, solutions to this problem. And so we've committed $25 million uh, directly from our balance sheet to give access to the most promising diagnostic, therapeutic, and vaccine solutions that we can benefit by bringing scale and this manufacturing approach to cell engineering to make them go faster in, the, in figuring out their solution that can help uh, end this crisis sooner. We frankly, just said, it's not worth waiting for private money or government money. Like this is too important. We have to get moving now. And so this is a, the first you know, amount of money that we were gonna, that we decided to allocate. It just was too important not to. So that's awesome. Could I draw an analogy of, um, okay, I have a lot of manufacturing companies in my district that don't make masks or ventilators, but are now figuring out they can yeah. they get approval. You know, they want to use their facilities to be able to produce sort of goods that we need. You're kind of doing that, in, in, but in terms of treatments, vaccines, and other, you know, organisms that you could literally print that would, you know, help human beings get over the effects of coronavirus. Yeah, look, and let you think about it, it's, you know, making it one step further with coronavirus, right? Like, temporally, this matters. First, we've got to get testing up and running. So diagnosis, and there's a bunch of different types of that, right? The one that we're racing to get out is this yes-no test, essentially. Can you walk in, get swabbed, do you have it or not? Got to do that. Second layer of that is, can we test blood to see if you've been exposed or not? Then you can figure out if the, if the population has been exposed. How you do that is you have, um, you understand what in the blood is 
uh, uniquely indicating that you've had a, um, had a response with your immune system to it. Well, and you have to be able to produce those little things, uh, antibodies at massive scale to put into testing kits so you can figure out how to do that. Um, third would be DNA sequencing. Should, you know, right now we have a yes, no test, but you want to be able to sequence, remember the, like the DNA sequence of every living thing. Well, the virus has a DNA sequence and it's constantly mutating, constantly changing. And right now we're getting yes, no, yes, no. What we really need for scientists to get to the, to the front of the line and figuring this out is what is the DNA sequence so you can tra trace where it came from, where it's going, how it's mutating, how it's changing, and then ultimately correlate it back to the different types of diseases it's causing. So all of those are back-end things we can help accelerate doing those types of things. And that's the kind of collaborations we're talking about with people. You've got a novel idea over here that you've done in your academic lab. Can we give you money and services and support to take it from academia into emergency use faster? Right? Something like that. So, okay. And I'm not asking you to weigh into the debate on whether this drug works for coronavirus. There's been a lot of talk about chloroquine, uh, queen, sorry if I'm saying that wrong. All the physicians in my family are like, we need to be mass producing this right now. But so much of this is made in India that even if the president said, you know, we have to do it, right? And we allowed patients the option of taking it, fully respecting that there haven't been randomized trials. And I understand what Dr. Fauci is saying. But theoretically, if, if we got the green light, could you use a company like Ginkgo or just synthetic biology in general to print a, and manufacture a bunch of drugs like chloroquine that we might need to treat people with COVID-19? Yeah, I think so. Maybe I'll do two things. One, we've taken a pretty strong footing. We are, we are definitively not public health experts at Ginkgo, right? We're R&D acceleration. Um, and I will also caveat, right? Uh, we, aren't, we aren't a manufacturing company in the sense of scaling up mass production. Um, you could get the prototypes you know, ready then then that could be scaled up later on sure and i think that this is a like the the bigger topic here is something i know that you've been working on and we really appreciate it because it's been something we've been looking at for three or four years there just hasn't been like the uh you know momentum to do something about it is i mean america really needs to think carefully about its uh drug supply chain yeah and not just so chloroquine like it's an anti-malarial, there's a million people on it already. I'm actually not worried. If that were to be a solution that randomized clinical trials say is a good solution, I'm not worried about scaling up that specific. There's plenty of companies actually that can make a lot of it that we can get access to. I think some of them are in the US. I think that could be solved relatively quickly. I think the bigger issue, and it's worth highlighting, um, is what we've done over the last 20 years to essentially outsource all of the foundational antibiotics primarily um, other oncologic drugs, like critical things that uh, provide a pretty substantive vulnerability to the country, not being able to manufacture them domestically. Um, and this is an area where um, companies like Ginkgo and particularly Ginkgo can dramatically help because the big issue is cost, right? So in a purely market, the reason it's been outsourced is not a crazy reason. It's been subsidized in other countries, obviously. You've highlighted that. Um, but at the end of the day, um, these are generic drugs that are critical to humanity surviving, but they're generic and these supply chains have been working fine for normal situations, but it is a strategic issue. So you have to defeat the kind of market forces and my world, you don't want the U S government to be funding that in perpetuity. So what you have to do is improve the technology. And I'll be really specific about that for a second. There's two halves of the technology with an antibiotic. One, many of these, not all of them, but many of these start, with ferment fermentation-derived 
active pharmaceutical ingredients. What does that mean? There is a microorganism, yeast or bacteria or fungi that is fermented just like in a beer tank, a specific beer tank, right? And you have some, actually some, some great companies doing this in, your, in, in Wisconsin. Now you're putting um, terms that Northeast Wisconsin can understand here. Yeah, right? No, good. Um, so many of these are made via fermentation. So there's two halves of the cost structure. It's scale of making them. Do we make enough of them per unit cost that they're lower? And the second piece is the technology you make them in. What is the technology? It's a microorganism that eats something, say sugar, in this case, it's not always sugar, reads its DNA program and spits out the active pharmaceutical ingredient. Well, if you can improve that technology so it's more efficient, you reprogram the DNA a million times until it's way more efficient at producing that active pharmaceutical ingredient, it makes the production more cost effective and cheaper. So you have to do two sides of it. You have to improve the technology. We have the technology now in the US to do this, to beat the Chinese manufacturers. And then you have to produce at scale. Once you can do those two things, then you can actually make a, a market solution that has a better cost position in the key antibiotics or the key APIs that we need to domestically produce. But if we don't do both of those things, if we don't invest to improve the technology and scale the manufacturing, then we're not gonna have the, the competitiveness versus Chinese or Indian manufacturers that we need to keep it domestically and keep it a robust industry domestically. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. And I will say in the, in the course of the last three weeks, as we've really gone into this coronavirus crisis, you know, I spent a lot of the last three years focusing on our dependency with our supply chains in the telecommunications space and the fight with China over 5G and Huawei and ZTE. But I was not aware until this of a similar or at least orthogonal problem in our medical supply chain, but medical device supply chain, but also pharmaceuticals. And you rightly point out that I think upwards of 80% of our APIs go back to Beijing. Uh, it's largely a China and India story. So I guess, I mean, the commercial applications of what you guys are doing are obvious to me, right? With whoppers, with, um, with fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of geopolitics, I mean, where are we relative to the Chinese Communist Party here? And what do you think will be the geopolitical implications of this over the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah. Um, well, thankfully, where the technology is today, and like a good comparison if we keep with the computing analogy, we're like in the 50s and 60s of computer science. Interesting. All right. So we're still very much in the early phases of figuring this out and we still have a lead. China's doing lots of things at scale, but when it comes to the foundational advanced tech, we are in the programming piece, not the reading piece or the writing piece, though we're still very competitive there. The programming piece of how you turn this, this domain into an engineerable discipline, the US is still the forefront. We have this massive resource, which is our academic universities. We have some of the best companies in the world doing it, but that is not a foregone conclusion. And I think the key thing to your question, and I, I, I like to, you know, we're very much still in the education mode here. It's like, this is an economic power question, right? In the next 25 to 40 years, the biggest companies in the world will be synthetic biology companies. Wow. We have a lot of conversation at the strategic level about the importance of AI, quantum, yes, telecommunications. Like synthetic biology should be in the same sentence. Um, from an importance to the economy perspective. Like think about it, is this the last domain of high school science that we are about to, you talk about the industrial revolutions. The digital revolution moves around information on computers and look what's happened over the last 20 years to the economy. 
biology moves physical goods. It moves atoms. It's, it's actually manufacturing physical things. So from a national security and like really from a geopolitical strategy question, I think we need to reframe this topic around synthetic biology very much as, a, as an economic future question. And that means we have to maintain our, our lead. And for the simple question, specific reason, like there will be moral and ethical questions that come with this. And we want to be the ones setting the rules. We want to be the ones uh, setting open standards for this technology. And you don't get to do that unless you are the leader economically. Well, let's talk about how we might effectuate that. First of all, I do always think it's funny and I joke that, you know, there's these like buzzwords that creep into the lexicon of members of Congress so they can sound smart. And it's always like hypersonics, AI, blockchain. <laughs> so if you ever want to ask a question at hearing and sound smart, just be like, what are the, uh, the AI implications? And throw in a blockchain there, but no one really knows what they're talking about. But your point is well taken that like, we rarely, if ever, talk about synthetic biology. And if your argument is correct, we should be talking about it uh, way more than we are right now. But on the, something you said about there are ethical dilemmas that this poses, uh, and we want to be the ones in concert with our allies that are setting the standards for how this technology can be used for good and not for evil. Uh, I want to kind of pick your brain about how we might get there. And one thing that I think you said when I visited your headquarters, which has kind of stuck with me since, is that you know while we aren't throwing as much money at this as the Chinese are, uh, we have more innovation happening right now, but we also have this built-in advantage, which is the diversity of our biological ecosystem in the yeah. United States. Can you explain that and how we might yeah. leverage it going forward? Yeah, look, so um, this is really, it's a really cool topic. Uh, and once we're you get your mind- We're minutes, by the way, so we're just gonna oh. go for an hour, so, yeah. Um, it's really cool, once you get the intuition for it, right? So there are a few tangible things that we could do, and we can come back to them, but um, if you put in your mind, this is an economic security, economic question first over the next uh, 25 to 50 years, who will be the leader in engineering biology? Um, then you start looking at it and saying, well, what does that, what does that mean? Well, biology is all around us, right? And, um, you know, I, I don't know if maybe as a history major, again, to, to nerd out a little bit, right? Like the U.S. Geological Survey was created in the mid, eight, mid to uh, second half of the 1800s to go around and map the diversity of uh, natural resource that was in the U.S. My, mining opportunities, timber opportunities, places that we could go and say, oh, wow, we have this deep reservoir of asset. Well, in biology world, that is the natural biodiversity of the planet. All of the DNA code that is out there, use the example, a fun example, right? Um, the chameleons that change color on their skin, right? You know, so that is DNA code in cells that codes for likely proteins that allow them to match their surroundings. That is a fundamentally, the fundamental natural resource, the DNA code that allows you to do that. So if you think about what the implications are for the United States of America, what natural resources we have, it's not oil deposits anymore. It's, you know, it's not rare earth, rare earth material deposits, both important, but it's also like, we have 50 states that cover every natural biodiversity, kind of every piece of natural biodiversity on the planet. We should be sequencing the DNA of every living thing 
and making it, putting it into a data repository so you can gain data advantage over anybody else trying to leverage biology for, uh, for manufacturing purposes. And then you should make it open because that's how you set standards. And really you can't do anything other than have that as an information baseline. And then it's the, the advanced technology on top of it that makes it into products. The point is that we have this massive, almost USGS-like uh, uh, oil field underneath where, where we sit in each of our states that is a natural resource that we should be mining uh, to provide to all of the biological manufacturing capabilities that we have in the country. So I love this idea and it has been uh, like keeping me awake at night ever since you first suggested it. So in essence, a modernized US uh, geological survey that could do the collection of all the, the uh, organisms and cells and DNA that we have here nationally in the United States, and I'm, I'm just murdering all these terms. So like, just forget, yeah, right. put them all into a big bucket somewhere, all the yeah. data that we control, yeah. we set the standards, and then you said make it open. So in return for getting access to that massive repository of data, and you can start to see how this allows us to correct an imbalance or a disadvantage we have with the Chinese, who, at least when it comes to digital surveillance, can suck up so much more data than we can because they have A, more people, and B, don't care about spying on their citizens or putting them in prison camps. You're saying we kind of have a different advantage in this space. Okay, so in return for access to our database. By the way, there's an interesting paper that should be written comparing this to Eisenhower's failed Adams for Peace proposal in the 50s, but that's a story. Do you know me. anybody that knows anything about Eisenhower? <laughs> I, know a few, I know a few people. Um, <laughs> what, what, would we put ethical um, constraints on that access? Would we ask other countries or researchers from other countries to sign up to a code of conduct for how this data could be used? Yeah, look, this is exactly, this is not so different at all than what we've done with the internet, right? So by being the innovators through, oh, by the way, the U.S. government, because we were in a competitive landscape, not just because we thought the U.S. government should support a market, but because we were competing against other parties that could do the similar thing. ARPANET, we created it. It was government funded for years and years and years. But by becoming advanced in the internet, we got to set the standards and rules of openness. Um, and just like you're saying, we would, we would absolutely have the opportunity to say, in return for using this massive data asset, here are the standards upon which we believe open societies, liberal societies need to use these technologies. Oh, by the way, that doesn't stop people from going and inventing their own internet, but it's a network effect. And it creates a dynamic where 90% of the world or 85% of the world is on Google. And yeah, Google, Google has, its, or China has its own version, but they had to do it themselves. And the rest of the world lives in a relatively open internet. It's the same idea with data standards here. Around, uh, around this natural biodiversity and making it available, you get the opportunity to, to, set those, to set those rules. Would there not be a disadvantage for companies like yours who are at the forefront of this if such a repository existed? Or is your proprietary technology not the data itself? It's the way you use that data and then yeah. translate that into sort of a printed organism. Yeah, if you think about it, that's, exa that's exactly right. And if you think about it, it's just like, you know, the algorithm on top of the pool of data that you're talking about, say in China, right? They have a pool of data, but the, there's a lot of value in writing the algorithm to do something with it. So where we would specialize is amongst the ecosystem of people that had access to this data, we would use that data to make things out of it uniquely for the market. 
Um, and you still have a lot of abstraction to do on top of the core database, but you need the database to start to really advance yourself. So the other reason I love this idea is like, I, I think, you know, you could capture the imagination of uh, the younger generation, like the idea of being part of a modernized U.S. geological survey, a bioforce, US as, well, as we as debate the Space Force. Um, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to quibble with that because we this has to stay outside of uh, this is like DOD. it's not a DOD thing. Yeah, this is not a DOD thing, but uh, just well, two things. One, it's not a DOD thing. And like this is a domain in which we this is everything around us like our values would say we have to keep this a demilitarized demilitarized domain we were able to do it with space in the midst of the cold war like we can do it here but i would say yeah look it's the u.s genome survey right like it's a it's it's an amazing motivational force for a, an era you know it's no longer maker labs in 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 high school it's like am i learning to do dna sequencing oh by the way high schoolers are doing this stuff now right like um, there's this massive program called iGEM that was founded in Boston. Something like 3,000 high school kids a year come through and they're doing genetic engineering programs. Oh, by the way, one third of them are from China. And, but like, this is a very, this is like a catalyst for the future workforce to say, how do I understand being part of this massive effort to go categorize the unique value of the American natural repository? I, uh, I mean, if you'd come to me when I was 18 and said, hey, take a gap year or four gap years and you can go uh, wander around Door County, Wisconsin and help uh, the free world defeat the Chinese Communist Party in the process. I probably would have taken you up on that offer. Sure. Um, so interesting. What, I mean, what do you think would be the, beyond a lack of imagination and a status quo mindset in Congress or in government more broadly, what do you see as the primary obstacles to that sort of idea? Is it a dollars question? Just, you know, you need to make the investment of money Although we're throwing around $2 trillion now, um, or is it, I don't know. I mean, have you socialized this with anybody outside of Ginkgo and what, what, what's the response? Yeah, very tangibly. We've written, we've written a kind of, um, non-Ginkgo specific, a white paper on it. Cause we just believe half of what we do at Ginkgo, by the way, why you've heard me say the words Ginkgo like four total times today is like, we're passionate about what we're building as a company and, and want to be a key part of it. But half the battle here is education about this like industrial revolution that is coming about leveraging biology so we do a lot of just hey here's the here's what's happening so we wrote a white paper on this but I, to answer your question like yes it's a big investment but like let's put this in perspective um the war on terror the iraq and afghanistan conflicts that you and i participated in i don't know whatever the number is but it's something between 1.8 and 2.5 trillion dollars that we invested right over like 20 years we just wrote a check for two trillion dollars for like five days because look at it because because i know by the way it's because of biology like yeah. it is be, it is because there's a virus that does not respect borders that does not respect uh our ability to use traditional hardware and it you talk about expense two trillion dollars of war over 20 years and and it costs is costing us it'll cost us massive amounts more and it's a and it's a virus right like on the food chain of threats and, and I'll just say something really interesting about it. So I actually don't think if we got our head on straight, this is a question of, is there enough resource to be invested in a USGS um, building this repository to win? Because the, the, the threat that is caused by natural pandemics um, is, something that, uh, is something that's going to cost us massively. And I'll just like the last piece on it. Like, I do think if there's one silver lining 
uh, one 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 uh, kind of decent piece as we get through this crisis time. It's like people's realization that um, this is the century of biology. The world around us won't let us get away from it. We have to invest in having the tools. Um, I mean, I think we we absolutely have the ability um, to build a anti antivirus shield in this country and in this world. Um, it's understanding what's out there, sequencing and doing this this process, viruses and otherwise. It's being able to quickly respond way more quickly than we did this time, the next time. And I, I do think there's going to be a public health reset, a national security reset around the priority of bringing biology to the forefront of our investment. I mean, you and I have done how many war games where we're in the United States Marine Corps and like the topic is pandemic response. Yeah. And everybody's kind of like, oh, this is what we would do. This is what we would do. But everybody's like, yeah, but what if we had to do a beach landing in China? Right. You know, so we kind of, it's always been fourth or 10th priority. I think it comes right back up to the top priority. And we, we as a society need to catalyze that and say, what are the creative things we can do so that the next time, five years from now, the next time, 20 years from now, the next time, 50 years from now, we're fundamentally not unpatched pieces of software responding to viruses and trying to fix it after you've been infected. We, are, we, have, we have solved this bio threat issue from anything and we are moving forward in a, in a different paradigm than we are today. Well, on the well, just quickly on it's a comment you made about the cost of this. It is interesting to look at this. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I do think when the dust settles, we'll be able to say, shamefully, that had we made an investment of ten million or one billion dollars in testing early on, we could have avoided a two to ten trillion dollar problem on the back end. And so we still have all, despite being a very resilient society, we have discovered all these single points of failure that we have to figure out to become more resilient or anti-fragile going forward. I wonder though, just, okay, what about the Pandora's box question, right? Obviously nature is much smarter than you and I and has had thousands and thousands and thousands of years to figure this whole thing out. Are you not, is there not a point where just the very act of messing with, you know, the printing of organisms, does it not freak you out at all? I mean, I get the question of like Chinese super soldiers freaking people out, but there just could be massive unintended consequences to this whole thing. How do you guys think about that in your industry? If that makes sense at all? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, you, it would be irresponsible not to think about it and address it and kind of try to ignore that. I would say that um, this is, this is why, why, at least at Ginkgo, engaging more and more and more people in this topic um, bringing it and making it more accessible to folks, more transparent to folks. You've been to Ginkgo. I mean, it's very, it's very symbolic, but all of our labs are glass walled. All of our labs are glass walled for a reason is because we want to show transparency. It's why we spend so much of our time doing education activities around what Symbio is. But to get to it specifically, what's actually uniquely nice about biology as a technology advances is one thing, but like there's a lot of really smart regulatory regimes around biology. The FDA, Department of Agriculture, there's, there's a lot of ways, because the biotech industry on the healthcare and pharmaceutical side has been become so mature, we know a lot about how to make sure this technology is safe. And we need to keep making sure that, um, that our 
global public institutions in, in the US or regulatory institutions know how to do that and should be doing that. This is not, let's try to get around that. This is actually, let's make sure that we have smart regulation, smart safety, because we are pretty mature in being able to regulate it and understand what it is. And then there's biology is such a vast class of things, right? Um, we've been on one end of the spectrum, you know, corn, we've been, we've been engineering corn since the beginning of time, right? Like that, that's just not, that's just fundamentally true. And it's the same thing with more advanced technology as what we're doing today. Um, and so th this is just like making sure we understand the different classes, that's, that's safe and fine. If you're unregulated in China using CRISPR on babies, that's a problem. Yeah. Um, which is why we have to win, which is why we need foundational, most worried about foundational early stage R&D investment from the US government, the same type of money that made us win in semiconductors in the 50s and 60s, the same type of money that made us win the ARPANET, because we had to be faster, it was a competitive dynamic. We had to be faster in the foundational technologies so that we could set the rules, so that we could be create ethical standards in the right regulatory regime, so that you aren't lost in this world of uh, unregulated activities. It's so interesting. Just I can't I can't escape the parallels of. I mean, in the late '40s, early '50s, we built all of these organizations, whether it's NATO, whether it's INF, whether it's the UN, and we, being the dominant power and the first mover, did set the rules of the road, which is why this term rules-based international order still dominates the foreign policy lexicon. I tend to think it's lost all its meaning and a lot of these institutions need to be modernized, but we're kind of at a, a similar place where we were in the late 40s and 50s in terms of these new industries where you know, we're not in as dominant a position as we were coming out of World War II, but we still have an opportunity-ish yep. together to define the rules of the road and establish a new rule-based order for synthetic biology, AI, cyber, et cetera, et cetera, 5G. I couldn't agree more. Like, look, if you want to think about it like this and with the frank statement up, again, uh, up front again, our interest has to be keeping biology and the biology space as a demilitarized zone and, and something that we need to be put forward in. Look, um, you and I lived in the in the DOD lexicon for a while. Like bio is its own domain. Yeah. Right? Land, but, but it's interesting how it correlates with technology. Land became a domain accessible because we're humans and we live on land, right? Sea became a domain kind of at the turn of the 20th century with Alfred, Alfred Thayer Mahan writing sea power and like recognizing that it was a different, a different um, way of operating. Air becomes accessible with airplanes. Space becomes accessible in the Cold War, which we, by the way, did a very good job, even in the Cold War, of keeping as a demilitarized space. Um, separate conversation of what has happened when, when we've lost the uh, technological advantage, or we have the advantage, but lost the, the uh, kind of unipolar advantage um, or bipolar advantage. Cyber becomes a domain because digital tech explodes. But look, like uh, biology is everything around us. It's our bodies. It's the water, it's the air, it's the plant life. And we are now operating within that domain. COVID-19 just like emphasizes that. Like it is, it is a domain in which we have to think about operating differently because we have the technology transformation to be able to do it. COVID-19 is painful, but it's going to be solved. And it's going to be solved by biotech and synthetic biology. Wow. Right? 
the, the vaccines that are going to work likely, knock on wood, are mRNA vaccines, synthetic biology design vaccines that we've never used before. They're the ones in clinical trials with Moderna right now. And that's because we have private sector companies that are operating on a faster OODA loop, if you will, in being able to respond to this natural pandemic. Um, so anyway, I think on you got to think. On this you, podcast, you start... you drink every time you say OODA loop or another Marine Corps. Yeah, fair. Or, it's too early in the morning for that. Um, well, you've got to be thinking. You've got to be thinking yeah. about it in in that dimension, right? Totally. Uh, so I think we have a, a, like about uh, ten minutes left. So well, I want to talk about more fun things. Not that synthetic biology isn't fun. Uh, you've done a great job explaining it to the layman, such as, as myself. Um, so quickly, what? Uh, okay, why did you join the Marine Corps first of all? And when yeah, did that, um, that? When did you get incepted to consider that? Um, there's the there's two halves of that answer. One is uh, lofty and idealistic, and one is just uh, really basic and selfish. Um, the lofty, but, idealistic, service to country stuff. I get it. It's no, no, no. I'm going to be more. I'm going to be more specific, right? And it's really important in the book, the things they carried. There's a scene where the main character is driving around his pickup truck, saying, "Ah, oh, it's during the Vietnam War. Should I run to Canada or should I get drafted?" And ultimately, what he comes down to is. Um, well, I've drank clean water, I've gone to the schools, I've eaten food, I've accepted everything that this system, this liberal democracy, this republic based on freedom of human beings has offered to me. I've taken it all in and I've benefited from it all. And now this one time that I don't agree with the Vietnam War, that they, they're asking me to go fight for it, now I'm going to say, well, this part I don't agree with. And he ultimately, despite being anti-Vietnam, goes and gets drafted and goes to the war on the principle that he'd, he'd accepted everything else. Now, this is an opinion of mine on the Iraq war, but I was a 21-year-old history major saying, I have had every benefit this country has given to somebody, I should go do this. And that's the idealistic, the selfish one is every 21-year-old, uh, many 21-year-olds asking themselves, can you, can you test yourself, can you do it? Right. Certainly came through to me uh, and I, I like couldn't turn, I couldn't turn away. Would you recommend Ground Intelligence 0203 as an MOS to someone at near the end of the basic school right now? Look, um, what I would say is if you want to actually lead Marines, you want to be, but you also want to participate in the kind of lots of the cutting edge of the fight today as an intelligence driven fight. Um, there's, a, there's very few other places where you can go to the infantry officer course and do that. You know, you could be a human intelligence officer like the good congressman, and oh, it's kind of like it's nice, it's Nerds. important, but you know, you're just you're not you don't you don't get to go to the infantry officer course. You're a little hesitant because you don't know if you can make it through. You might choose that, but uh, you know, that's a longer conversation. Okay, so uh, God, what was I going to ask? Oh, okay, uh, business school. I did not go to business school. Most of that's my, clear. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> equity. I threw out terms like equity, and I like that. Uh, um, there's, uh, I think, an ongoing debate about the utility of business school. I think a lot of my friends who went to the best business schools, whether it's GSB or HBS, would say the primary value was the networking more than the coursework. There's different views. Would you recommend business school to someone who, say, is getting out of the Marine Corps and thinking about making that transition to the private sector? If we're specifically talking about people leaving the Marine Corps, um, yes. Uh, I think the, the fact that you've spent four, or year, four years or longer um, outside of the private sector ecosystem, uh, I think there's a lot of great things Marines have 
amazing skills for and can transition into roles and jobs in the workforce. Uh, and there's also things you just don't know. And so if you're on that trajectory, you have decided that you wanted to spend four years in particular talking about folks that um, you know, chose after college to go into the Marine Corps, I think it's a pretty invaluable thing to do just to get to, to take a deep breath and gain some fluency in how the outside world works. So go back to that hypothetical Marine. Let's say you go into a bar in Northeast Wisconsin and there's a college kid who is on home at home right now because college is canceled and they're a rising junior or senior and are thinking about joining the Marine Corps, um, but they're hesitant. What would you say to that Northeast Wisconsin kid? Yeah. So this is one that I would have given you a different answer before and after I was in the Marine Corps. Um, I would say that it is the mo it was the single most important thing that I have ever done in my life. I would, if, if, if you are ready for what it takes to do that there, you should not hesitate at all. But I would say this isn't about the fancy pants and the sword, right? Especially in the time we live in, you have to really know what it means to go be an officer of Marines. If that's your path, uh, you are going to lead human beings that are the most valuable resource we have as a country who, who care very deeply about what they do. And you're likely to lead them into pretty tough situations. And you ought to may, be making the decision knowing that that's what you're doing versus you're doing it for the second reason I gave, which is a selfish test of your own skill sets. Um, and just think long and hard about that, read the news. And if you're up for that, then it was the best fundamental experience I have ever had uh, uh, in my life. Um, Mike, I can't speak for you, but I, I assume it was similar. I could not have said it better myself. Um, what do you, Matt McKnight, do for fun? And what have you and your family been doing to stay sane during the coronavirus crisis? Uh, well, I've been growing this beard kind of as a, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow it until the Celtics come back and are able to beat the Milwaukee Bucks. Not um, <laughs> Giannis is getting locked. Um, this is our year, and the whole season is Yeah, I know. Hey, look, the Bruins were first in the NHL, so I feel your pain. Um, look, yeah, what we're, what we're really doing, I'll go from – I just want to say this first. We have so many friends that are doctors, nurses, um, and, you know, I, like I feel viscerally um, having experienced what we've experienced. This is very much – I don't think it's hyperbole to say what they're doing is – um, you know, something that I deeply respect. They're putting themselves at personal risk to go every day and take care of people across this country. And it's not going to get better for the next at least four weeks in my mind. And it's going to be rolling in different places. So first and foremost, I'm just very thankful in, in this environment that we have the opportunity to, to do the small thing that we can do, which is stay in our house. Um, and so we've been, you know, I've been teaching survival skills. Uh, my wife, luckily enough, has been running homeschool for our seven and four year old. I am blocked for an hour a day to teach uh, PE and homes and uh, survival skills. So we've done uh, wound care. Uh, wow. We have done, um, uh, we have done fire starting. I don't know if it was smart to teach my four year old how to light a match, but we did it. Um, we did riflery uh, we're going to do archery and driving next week. Um, so we're just trying to make the best of it. And I think that's the only thing you can do. Awesome. Any book, I'm running more. Any that's good because you're very slow and still haven't gotten over the fact that you lost a race to me back in 2008. Um, yeah, it's unverifiable. 
any books that you've read recently uh, that you would recommend? I'm putting you on the spot here, or just books that have had a, a huge impact on you. You mentioned one that the things they carry that had a profound impact. Give our, our our tens of listeners who are have <laughs> Netflix Rainbow some recommendations here. Yeah. Um... Uh, I just finished last night Ashenden by Somerset Maugham. Oh, wow. Super, super cool World War I spy. One of his spy. Basically, he's writing true stories about experiences he had or observed as a spy in World War I around the, around the world. Um, and, you know, so that's like the literature version uh, of what I've been reading. Um, I, I think that that was, that's probably what I would put at the top of the list. Heck yeah. Okay, so we are running out of time here. So first of all, thank you, Matt, for being so generous with your time and for explaining all this. So what would be our, just kind of as we go out, the takeaways for someone who yeah. listens to this is interested in this crazy field known as synthetic biology. If you could just kind of leave them with one parting thought, what would it be? One, the most valuable companies in the world in 25 years will be synthetic biology companies. We need to, as a country, those companies need to be based here, just like Apple and Google and Amazon and all of the big tech companies are based here. It's the, ne it's the next phase of this. Second, there's going to be a um, economic, geopolitical, and uh, national security reset after COVID. And people are going to recognize that one of our top priorities absolutely needs to be building a robust response to a world that is a very globally connected world that can have massive damage, the craziness, a small virus causes trillions of dollars of damage like that. And we have the power to be more prepared to stop it. And I think that we all need to be supporting folks, Mike, like yourself, who are trying to do something from a, from a public policy perspective to change that. Key ones, APIs, we got to manufacture them in the US. We got to reset our supply chain around critical medical goods, both drugs and devices, have to do it. And the answer there is going to be a solution that is a combination of Midwest manufacturing and coast technology, plus put together to make a massively cost competitive uh, asset for the country. And second, we ought to reset our education system and uh, understanding of what our natural resources are in this country and i love your idea mike of the u.s genome service i think it's perfect i think we we ought to be doing that at scale getting people excited about going and, and leveraging the natural biodiversity of the country just like we've done with our oil reserves just like we've done with our mining reserves just like we've done with our timber assets throughout periods of history over the last 150 200 years awesome matt mcknight scholar warrior uh entrepreneur all around good dude. Thank you for joining us and uh, look forward to seeing you up in Boston sometime soon. Thanks for having me.